The king has returned. The prophecies fulfilled. The years of longing are over. The king has returned. And now all will be made right. Amidst shouts of praise and tears of joy, the pleading for justice, the cries for our enemies' defeat. The king has returned. The king who was driven from his land as an infant, who spent his first years as a refugee, who understands pain and suffering. But this king is not who we were looking for. This king brings justice not over our enemies, but in the midst of our enemies. He brings peace, not in our land, but in our souls. He is the answer to the prayer we did not know we were praying. The King has returned. Long live the King. The king is dead. The hand that once held a branch now gripped a hammer. The king is dead. This king of kings who embraced the very nature of a servant. This prince of peace broken for us. This commander of angels surrendered to a cross. This king joins us in our suffering, empathizes in our weakness, and he calls us to die with him, to lay down our lives, to live in surrender that we may be fully alive. The king is dead. Long live the king. This king is not gone forever. The story has not ended. There is a twist. A third act. There is a third day. And on that third day, the king will strip death of its power and extinguish the sting of Hades. This king is not defeated. This king is not destroyed. This king is the resurrection. He is the life. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. The king has returned, leaving death behind, destroying hate, inviting us all to live in his victory. His kingdom and his peace. Yes, the king has risen.
It's exciting to be able to worship together. I'm Dave Mitchell. I'm also one of the pastors here at Calvary Church. And we want to spend a little time talking about Mary that we saw on the screen. That is Mary Magdalene. She's a woman that uh, in Luke chapter 8, we are told, was tremendously saved. She had many demons in her life. And we don't know what they were. We don't know what she had done. We don't know what the brokenness is. But she was in a terrible state until she met Jesus Christ. And then Mary Magdalene walked with Christ for many years, maybe up to three years, maybe a little bit less. And she witnessed Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. She witnessed Jesus heal the lepers, feed thousands of people miraculously with just small bags of fish and bread. She has served him faithfully. And then we meet Mary Magdalene after she had witnessed Christ on the cross. She stood there with the mother of Jesus, Mary herself. She witnessed him for six hours in a terrible crucifixion of tremendous pain and blood and loss and mockery. She witnessed all that. And then Mary was the one we call Mary Magdalene from Magdala up in the Sea of Galilee area of Israel, where she gathered then with some other women to the tomb where Jesus was going to be buried and was buried. And they came to anoint that body as they would do in those days. And in fact, they don't have graves the way we do today. They have caves. And they would roll a stone to be able to secure the body and other elements that they may have in there. But they would want to come and anoint that body. That's how they would treat those who had died. And so they were being faithful on that Sunday morning as they came. And as they came, they witnessed that there was nobody in the grave and Some of the disciples, they just ran away. But Mary remained behind. And it's that point that we meet Mary, as you saw on the screen. And she is overcome with sadness. Because in her mind, Jesus is still dead. And she's living like he's dead. So I'm going to pick up in John chapter 20. If you have Bibles, you're welcome to read along. There's a Bible in the chair rack in front of you. I want to make a few observations about this tomb-side experience that Mary had. It says in verse 11, But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And there were two angels. The first thing that strikes me as unique about this story is that Mary is the first person to ever see the resurrected Jesus. So God in His sovereign design said, I'm going to allow Mary to be the one to see you, Jesus. And what's remarkable about that is because you go back in time in the culture of that day, women had no rights. Women were not allowed in the courtroom to testify. Because as Josephus, one of the historians, put it, he put it in this way, we don't want the women to testify in court because of the levity and because of the boldness of their sex. I don't know what any of that means, but that's what they believed, and they diminished women. There was also a guy in the second century whose name was Celsus, And he said there was no way, as he mocked Christianity, there was no way that Mary would have been the first witness to Jesus, as he said it. He said because she was deluded. She was an hysterical female, crazed with the sorcery of her heart. So there was an image of women in those days that they could not be believed, they should not be supported, they simply should be behind the scenes, They should cover up and get out of the way of all the men who were in charge. 
Now, that's still that way in portions of the Middle East. In fact, it wasn't that long ago that America did not have a particularly good record on their treatment of women. So it's intriguing to me that over the history of our t- world, really, those that have often been the ones who have been harassed and diminished, it was a woman that God said, I'm going to go to first. And if you think about it, if God was worried that people would not believe Him, He wouldn't send a woman, a woman out to be the first one to testify as to the veracity of His resurrection. And so this is the, the counter-kingdom of our God. In this story, we're going to see not only in choosing a woman to be the first testifier of the resurrected Jesus, it's really a bigger story of God's counter-kingdom, His upside-down world. He wants to take the world that you and I know naturally, and He wants to flip it on its head and say, I'm going to do things differently, not the way you expect me to do them. And as this story unfolds, you will see more of that. So as I read on the text, she encounters two angels in the tomb, and somehow she carries on a conversation with them, not realizing that they are angels. And that tells me that not all angels have big flappy wings or they fly around with halos on their head. They actually may be individual people, as we see in the Old Testament, where we might visit with them as we would visit with any person. And so Mary encounters them in her tears, and when you're in grief, you're not always thinking rationally. She says uh, to them, the angels sitting in one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying, and they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. There was so much about this experience that she did not know. And God takes us in those times where we just don't know what he's doing and likes to surprise us. And the text goes on, And when she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And then Jesus said to her, like the angels, same wording, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now, at this moment, it's not that Jesus didn't know that she was looking for him. What I love about God is he loves to sort of tease us along, and I'm uncomfortable with that, but God says, I've got something bigger going on that you may not know, Dave. And even though you don't know what's going on, even though you don't know that it's Jesus who is with you, even though I am asking you questions that I already have answers to, I want to draw you out. And she's in this, in this little zone of life where she's watched Jesus die, but she's never gotten to the point where she understands that he has been resurrected. So she's living in sort of this dead zone. The cemetery is a dead zone. She's living this life that is very naturalistic, very rational, very much on the human plane. And her assumption is that he is not alive because it goes on to say she was supposing that Jesus was the gardener, and so she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And so she carries on this conversation in this garden area outside this cave, if you will, where there is no body but angels, and she carries on a conversation that would probably be something like my conversation, where she's living as if he is still dead, but she wants to do the right thing. She just wants to be good. And so Mary there in her brokenness, and I love this image of Mary from the 
from the screen that we have just seen, where life is a little bit of out of focus, there's no clarity, something's going on here, but I don't understand it, and she is struggling with the issues that are surrounding her, and yet all the while, Jesus is right there. So I think about Mary's life and I think about her heart. There were some words that came to my mind, like, if I could presume upon her life, because I can identify with where she is at in this situation. Because so much in her life, if I could put words on the screen, she is probably in this stage of disillusionment. She had watched Jesus do all those miracles, make all these promises, and yet it ended in this terrible, terrible death that she had to witness for six hours. Disillusioned because God's plans just aren't working out the way you thought they would. We've dealt with people who have marriages, that when they got married on that day, it was so happy, but then you talk to them five years, 10 years, 15 years, or even 30 years later, and they're disillusioned over this is the blessed married life. There was other discords that I saw in her life. She's discouraged. She's disappointed. She is in a state of despair. Here she's followed Jesus all this time, and, and now she's in the garden tomb weeping because she feels abandoned and all alone. Her heart is in despair. Some other words that came to my mind is that she has this failed relationship. Some parents have a failed relationship with their children. Some spouses have a failed relationship with their ex-spouse. Some employees have a terrible relationship with their boss, but you need the job. And some of us have relationships with neighbors who play their music too loud, and you're not quite sure how you should respond. (laughs) And so we all have these things, be they small like that or major, where life is simply not going well. And Mary is a lot like me, or I should say I'm a lot like her, where I have this dutiful, responsible portion of my brain where I simply want to continue to do the right thing. If I just be good, God will bless me. If I'm just good, God will accept me. If I'm just good, somehow I'll earn his favor and his grace. And so she comes to the tomb. She's the first one there. The disciples run away. They go to their homes. They cower in fear in their homes. But Mary remains there, troubled, but trying to be good because she wants to go get the body that somebody stole away and put it back where it belongs. She just wants to be good. And there's a lot of us just want to be good. But it doesn't gain us favor with God. And God sees beyond that. And so there's a sense of abandonment because he is not there. She also has this sense of self-reliance. And that's where I come in. Self-reliance. I just want to do the very best I can. If I work hard, things will work out. If things don't work out, well, I should just work harder next time. And it's all up to me to get it right. So if I put my best effort in, things should be able to piece together and I will accomplish what I think God wants me to accomplish because I'm good and I want his favor, I want his grace, I want him to love me. So if I'm good, maybe he'll love me some more. So this sort of this humanistic, naturalistic way of thinking as she continues to live her life with a broken heart where things just aren't piecing together. And there's a lot of times we are mindful that this is, the, this is the kind of life that a lot of people live, sort of in between the cross and the resurrection, where I'm in this zone of just trying to be good, self-reliant, but it's just not working out, and my heart is always broken. 
was reminded of that this, this last week. One of the things uh, I appreciate the opportunity to do is to do chaplain work, Santa Ana PD. We came home from church last Sunday night, got a call. There's been a homicide downtown Santa Ana in one of the high gang crime areas of the city. And lo and behold, there was a young man, about 20, who had gone to Palm Sunday services in the church right next to where he was shot and walked out of that prayer service a Palm Sunday and was gunned down. So I arrived on the scene. I saw his lifeless body still laying there, and I went over to his family. His family was about 15 or 20 people gathered together beyond the yellow tape of the cops. And there they were mourning, they were weeping, cousins, siblings, aunts and uncles, and grandma, no mom, no dad. As I was going to learn, mom and dad have a criminal past and are simply not available. He's never had a healthy, loving, parental guidance in his life. So he walks out of the church and is gunned down, and Grandma is there, and she is brokenhearted. It's Grandma's birthday last Sunday at the same time. And Grandma is sitting there in the chair. She's about 80. And Grandma keeps on saying, Por qué? Por qué? Why? And his siblings, why? As they wept. They were overcome. They were very emotional. And they were getting into arguments with the officers that are there that wouldn't let them go see the body. So I'm sort of trying to be the rescuer and the referee at the same time. And as I thought about that, one of the things that you probably know as well is that when you come to a situation where someone has lost a loved one, as they ask the question why, sometimes you think, well, if I could just come up with a good answer for them, it would fix them. If I could just explain why, they'd say, oh, thanks, Dave. Now it makes sense. Let's all go home, nothing else to see here. Now we know why. That doesn't work. And so asking the question why is that grief expression of struggle, as Mary might be asking, why? Why did he die? Why did they take his body away? As I, sat, as I stood there processing what I was experiencing, I couldn't go to Grandma and say why her son had to die as he did. But it reminded me, and it stirred in my own mind, why Jesus had to die, why Jesus had to be buried, why Jesus rose from the dead, so that no one need die a hopeless death on earth. That's why Jesus came. And I looked at that young man and that loss of life, that Jesus, without you, we of all people are hopeless. So Jesus comes into this world because he wants to change that. He wants to change those conditions. He wants to change us. And that's why I love this next section of the text in John 20, where Jesus then comes to Mary, and the text says Jesus said to her, Mary, Mary. She hears her name and you know how it is when mom and dad used to say, David, or your name. And you could sort of tell whether it was a good thing or a bad thing, but you knew it was mom or dad. And Jesus comes and says, Mary. And she recognizes that voice. How many times did she hear it for three years? 
And then she turns. So she turns to face Jesus and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, teacher, it is you. Can you imagine what it was like when she turned and she saw a living Lord that she had served for three years that just moments ago in tears she assumed he was dead? In her naturalistic mindset, she just assumed he's dead and that somebody stole the body. It never occurred to her that somehow the miracle of the resurrection had occurred. And I can tell you there are many days for me where I sometimes act as though he's still dead. And it never occurs to me that the miraculous, the powerful, almighty God still has these things in his hands. And that although I can't see him and although I don't understand him, he's still a God who's doing a mighty work. And that's one of the messages that comes out of the resurrection through Mary, that he is a mighty God that wants to surprise us with his power of the resurrected life. You know, it's interesting that when she physically turned to see Jesus, as it said, that word turn, Jesus used that term. Jesus used that word for turn in Matthew 18, verse 3. And there he used it, and it was translated convert. Jesus said, unless you are converted like one of these children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So in many ways, there was a physical turn, obviously, for Mary, but there was also a spiritual turn. It was a conversion, if you will. And what God is inviting for you and for me is a spiritual conversion where we turn from our naturalistic, human, rational, just-be-good kind of behavior, go to search on Sunday morning on Easter, and maybe God will smile and be so happy you're there. And maybe it's God saying, no, I'm looking for something more. I'm looking for a conversion of the heart where there is a dependence and a trust and a reliance upon me and not upon yourself. Jesus put it in this way, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death and into life. Mary, in the death zone of a cemetery, passes from death to life. God wants that for all of us. He doesn't want us to naturalistically just try to be good. He wants us to turn to him with all of our heart and embrace him. Notice what it says. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. I have not yet ascended to the Father. It shows this physical hug that she has on on Jesus as she gets up off her knees and embraces him. Won't let him go. He's a physical body. He's not a ghost. He's not an image. He's not imagination. He's physically there as he had fish and ships with him a little bit later as well. And they gather together and have this physical embrace. Jesus says, I want you to turn to me. I want you to embrace me. I want it to be a personal thing, as he goes on to say. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father, your Father, my God and your God. He says, Mary, this is not about a God that is out there somewhere. This is not about a Father that is somewhere out there. This is your Father now. This is your God. I want this to be personal. I want this to be yours. I want more than just an institutional, general relationship. I want it to be like a father unconditionally loving his child. 
I want you to be part of the family. I want you in submission to me. Turn to me. Embrace me. Let me be your father. Let me be your God who guides you. As she runs off, she tells the other disciples, I've seen the Lord. Now again, would you want to trust every evidence of the resurrection of Jesus and a woman in the Middle East in a culture that diminishes who they are? No, but God does. God works differently than us. If it were up to me, somebody stole the body, I assume it's some naturalistic answer that I can explain away. But God says, no, counter-kingdom life. Where I do the miraculous, I do the unexpected. I do the things that you can't do on your own. I do for you what you can't do for yourself. That is give you eternal life as you turn to me, embrace me, trust me. And we come back to these words again. I think about Mary. And these may be some words that are in your heart and your mind somewhere. Because even as we worship together, we're all happy. And as uh, Matt pointed out, we're all pretty. We're in our nice clothes. We feel good about that. These are words that some of us still carry. And I don't know which word that you might relate to the most. I will complain that my words can be just be good and be self-reliant and pick yourself up and work harder. And I tend to want to do that. Maybe one of those words is yours. But God says, I want to do more than just sort of fix those problems. I'm reminded, I, I love this story. I've shared it before. I'm going to share it again until everybody's heard it once. There's a single mom, and she wrote a story about her life, and she wanted to tell about one day in her life. And so she wrote this up in a magazine, and she said there was one day when as a single mom, she's trying to take care of her little three-year-old boy, and life wasn't going well. The washing machine had broken. The dishwasher was out of sorts. The car needed repairs. She had no money to fix any of them. And her little boy wouldn't take the food as she tried to dish it out to him. Had a bowl of cereal, of Cheerios and milk. And he just refused to open his mouth and take anything in. And she was getting so frustrated. And this little guy's all full of energy. And he finally slaps the high chair and he hits the bowl and the Cheerios and the milk flies all over mom. And she's all dismayed. And she's just brokenhearted. And that was the final straw for her. So she just began to sob. Just became overwhelmed by the problems of life. So she put her head down on the high chair, she said. And as she put her head on the high chair, her little boy took the pacifier out of her mouth, out of his mouth, and put it in her mouth. <laughs> he was trying to do all that he could to help. And what I love about that is that image of the broken-hearted condition that we can be in. And I'm not here to say, so don't worry that Jesus is the great pacifier in the sky. No, no. Although there are days when I want to sit in my office and try one on. But one thing I will say is this. He's not the big pacifier. But Jesus says, I have come to give you peace. In the midst of all those issues, I've come to give you peace. And what he invites us into is to put those things in submission to him, to take the crown that is his, the rule that is his, the reign that is his, the resurrected life of his kingdom 
I want to put it over all these things. I know that I can't fix them all. I know that they may be there in some dimension, but I want to know that, God, whatever I'm going through, you are ruling over them with me. You are there. I want to live that way. Not where I do it on my own, but you do it for me. We take all those pieces of our lives, and I love this quote of Samuel Chadwick. He said, it is a wonder what God can do with a broken heart if he gets all the pieces. He wants all of us. He doesn't want to fix this and fix that. He wants all of us. So we come before him, and when we come before him and make Jesus our king, here are three promises that come our way. Promise number one, that Jesus will be present. He will be present even if we can't see him or recognize him. That was Mary's problem. He was there all the time, as it said in the text in John 20, 14. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know it was him. There is so much when we go through of the challenges of life, and it feels like, God, you've abandoned me. But he says, Dave, I promise to never leave you or forsake you. Promise number two. Jesus provides insight because there are so many times in life when I don't understand what he's up to. Why? Why? like last Sunday night. Why? As Mary looked to Jesus, Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned to him and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher, give me a lesson. Teach me. Tell me what you're up to. God will speak to us. And then finally, the last promise is this, that Jesus gives us hope. He gives us hope and we turn complete to embrace him, to embrace his rule and his reign where we in submission say, Lord, I put my life in your hands. I trust you. You are the one who died for me. You are the one who does for me what I can't do for my own. I've tried to be good. I know it's never going to be good enough. I'll never earn your favor with my goodness. So God, I'm going to just surrender to you completely. So have your way. Your will be done, not mine. And she came before Jesus and said, he said to her, don't don't cling We need to move forward. We want to have this personal relationship with my Father, now your Father. My God, He is now your God. And I want to have this relationship with all of us. So I ask this question. Will you turn? And, you know, for some of us, it may be more like return. Return to our resurrected Christ to allow Him in His loving way to place a crown on every issue of our lives, to rule over us and to guide us and provide for us. One of the ways that we can respond to something like that, and I put on the back of the outline, there's a lot more on here if you'd like to do a little more digging yourself. But I put a prayer on the back side of the outline, and this is the prayer that you could pray that would make Jesus your king. Let me read this prayer. And only God knows your heart. If this is a heartfelt prayer for you for in this moment, God bless you. We want to know about that. But if this is something you want to think about, don't think too long. We invite you to this relationship. Here is your prayer. Here is my prayer. God, I know that I have sinned against you, and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe that Jesus is Lord, who came to live a perfect life, die as payment for my sins. And he rose from the dead to bring freedom, restoration, and eternal life to all who believe in him. I don't have all the answers, so help me learn from Christ 
as he leads and guides. Please remove any fear or uncertainty that I may feel about the circumstances of my life as I look to Christ as my rescuer and ruler. From now on, help me to follow you daily. Turn from my sin. Live in step with your Holy Spirit according to the Bible. May I find great pleasure and joy in serving you as I fully place my life in your hands for the purpose of your kingdom and the glory of your name. If that's your prayer, you're taking that crown and you're saying, God, rule over me. I am in submission to you. We would love to come alongside and support you like Jesus came alongside Mary. We don't have all the answers like Jesus does, but we want to have the love like Jesus did. And there's a thing called the card that's in the chair rack in front of you as the offering is received here in just a moment. We'd love to know if you've made a decision like that, to believe in Jesus as your personal Savior, to return to Christ, to renew a relationship with Him, to say, Lord, I've been living on my own in self-reliance, just trying to be good, but I need more than that. That's such an empty way of living. I want to put my whole life and faith and trust in you today. So rule over me. If you'd indicate whatever that decision is on that card, you can drop it in the offering as it's passed here in just a moment. We'd love to be able to support you in that journey. Let me pray for us. Let me pray that God would do the mighty work. Not me, not you, but let God do the mighty work. So let me pray. Help us, Father, as we now pause and talk to you, even as you have spoken to us through your word. God, helps to have hearts that are open and soft and teachable, malleable, to hear from you and to be shaped by you. God, there may be some of this room who are a lot like Mary on her knees, weeping over struggles of life. Others come in a sense of, uh, I'm doing okay, but it might be heavily into the self-reliance, naturalistic way of life. But they're just trying to do the right thing and be a good husband, father, friend, brother, sister. But God, have never surrendered fully where Jesus Christ rules and reigns in a loving kind, compassionate way. Father, I pray for any who do not have that relationship that they would surrender to you this day. And Father, pray that they would indicate it to us that we could support them. We thank you for the offering we receive as our opportunity to say thank you in some small way for the gift of life in Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.